Well, our general topic in the study of Proverbs this year has been living successfully in a treacherous world. We have looked at this from many different angles already as we trace the different themes in the book of Proverbs, all of them connected to this single word wisdom, and, and wisdom is defined as this ability to live successfully in a treacherous world, live successfully in God's eyes, according to God's standards, in a fallen world, a world that groans under the curse and a world that manifests sinfulness in all aspects. How can we live successfully in that world? Well, the book of Proverbs was compiled in order to give us real practical insights, concrete teaching on how to do that. And it gives us this teaching on on a manifold number of issues. We've looked at many of them already. I looked today, and this is our 21st installment in this series on the book of Proverbs. Many different topics, and we have more topics to come yet. And one of the most challenging ones that we face, which the book of Proverbs addresses, is the issue of handling fools. How do we relate to fools? How do we relate to those who do not honor our Lord, those who do not fear God, those who are not teachable, those who resist instruction? And we have them everywhere in our life. This world is full of fools. In fact, it's interesting to note that when we look at the book of Proverbs, the word that can be translated in the English as fool can translate an array of Hebrew terms. There are many different terms in the book of Proverbs that relate to this category of what we'd call the fool, those who manifest folly, those who are foolish. I'm not going to go through all the terms. They're there in your handout and on the slide here. But there's an array of terms that describe fools all the way from the simple, open-minded, naive fool who lacks discernment, who's gullible and easily misled, all the way to the wicked, deceitful, perverse, cruel, envious, corrupt, detestable fool. Many different terms used. And we ask the question, why is that? And I would say this, the reason is, is that Solomon and those who contributed to the book of Proverbs, by their use of all of these synonyms, are are pressing a very important point. And it is this, there are fools everywhere. And they come in all different shapes and sizes. They manifest their folly in all kinds of different ways. There's no one single way to describe them, and that is to emphasize the fact that we must expect that we will come across many of such fools in many different ways, many different looks, as we walk life's path. And we can testify to that. We can look even at this past day, you know, if you drove on the freeway. I mean, there is, it's full of fools on the freeway. I don't think anyone would dispute that fact. Uh, We would, if you're on social media, undoubtedly today, if you have any social media account and you look on social media, you see fools spouting left and right. Far more fools in social media than wise men. They're there. 
Fools may be at work in your workplace. Fools may be in your neighborhood, your own neighbor, the man who lives across the street, the family behind your home, in the house, behind yours, so on and so forth. You can find the fool also even in your own family. Perhaps it's a brother, perhaps it's a brother-in-law, perhaps maybe even one of your sons. We find fools everywhere, and they range from the simple, naive ones to those staunch, rebellious ones. And, it, and their presence provides us with one of the great challenges in life. How do we navigate life properly, successfully, as we walk the path and have all these fools intersecting with our lives in, across our path every day? How do we live our lives successfully as men who fear God, as those who have been placed by His sovereign grace on the path of life? How do we navigate these fools. Well, the book of Proverbs provides us with some very helpful insights on this very topic. In fact, what we're going to do this evening to the best that we can in in the time that we have remaining is look at seven lessons on handling fools from the book of Proverbs. The wisdom of Proverbs, the instruction on Proverbs, principles for how to relate to the fools who intersect with us on the path of life. Let's look at the first one. It's this. Number one, we must recognize their spiritual condition. We must recognize their spiritual condition. A wise response to fools must begin with proper doctrine. This is where it always begins. We must look at fools the way that God does. We cannot define fools the way that the world might. We cannot define fools even the way that we might wish to define them. We must come to this topic with a, with a revelatory stance. We must define them according to the way that God has defined them. And we would call this in the realm of theology, we would call this a biblical anthropology. Not a secular anthropology, or a psychological anthropology, but a biblical one, defining the fool as God has defined him. And the book of Proverbs presents some of these characteristics. Now, I'll just mention this. Back in September, we had a topic called forsaking folly. And there I treated this in, in a lot more detail. I'll just summarize some of these things in the next couple of moments as we describe the fool. But you can go back to, to that topic for more of a, of a lengthier description of the fool. But for this uh, particular emphasis right now, let me highlight five key qualities, five distinguishing traits of a fool. And this will help us understand the rest of the lessons that Proverbs teaches us on handling fools. Number one, the fool is known by the fact that he places confidence in the self. Over and over again, the book of Proverbs defines the fool as the one who is wise in his own eyes, who walks according to his own heart, who trusts in his own understanding. And so one of the fundamental traits, a characteristic of a fool, is that he's always right 
in his own eyes. Proverbs 12, verse 15, just one example here. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. But, now here we have an antithetical parallelism, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. A fool places confidence in the self. Number two, a second distinguishing characteristic is that a fool refuses to accept correction. You always know when you're in the presence of a fool and that if you try to offer correction, even with the most gentle spirit, with the the most gracious words, a fool is the one who will always resist the correction. A fool is hard-hearted. He will not accept any rebuke. He will not even accept the most gracious form of correction. Proverbs 17 verse 10 says, A rebuke goes deeper into one who has understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. Now, now the, the rhetoric there is, the, the emphasis is that the, the fool is so hard that no matter how you try, how many different angles, how many different approaches, a fool is always the one who will resist correction. Number three, a third characteristic of the fool is that he flaunts sin and mocks holiness. Now, not all fools are going, to exist, are going to exhibit all of these characteristics, but there are some fools who will certainly exhibit this one. He will flaunt his sin, and he will mock holiness. He will ridicule your effort to obey Christ. He will ridicule your desire to, have, to, to meet in Bible studies. He'll ridicule your desire to be here on a Wednesday night. He'll ridicule your commitment to be together with God's people, to hear the preaching of God's word. He, he will ridicule your efforts that you make in your home to train up your children in the, the instruction of the Lord. The, the fool is the one who will flaunt sin and will mock holiness. Proverbs 14 verse 9, fools mock at sin, but among the upright there is goodwill. A fourth cardinal characteristic of a fool is that he uses his tongue, his language, his speech in a certain way. The fool uses his speech to destroy. This is where fools really manifest themselves. Just give them an opportunity to speak. And the words that will come out of their mouths will be detrimental, destructive. They'll be sarcastic. They'll be full of cursing. Or perhaps they'll be filled with gossip and slander. They will speak untruths, lies. This is a cardinal characteristic of a fool. Proverbs 18 verses 6 to 7 say this. A fool's lips bring strife and his mouth calls for blows. A fool's mouth is his ruin and his lips are the snare of his soul. You can always say this, you just give a fool, it's like giving him a little bit of rope. You give him an opportunity to speak and he'll always hang himself. Number five, another cardinal characteristic of a fool is that he is one who rushes to anger. Proverbs is clear on this. We're going to have a a specific evening designed or or focused, dedicated to this topic a little bit later on in in May, I think it is, we'll look at the problem of anger. But Proverbs is clarion clear on this issue. That the man who, who 
loses control and is exhibiting these outbursts of anger is a fool. Doesn't matter how much he knows. Doesn't matter his theological acumen. But the one who is given to outbursts of anger is no less, no more than a fool. And so you can always tell a fool by the fact that he's a hothead. He's a hothead. And so Proverbs 12 verse 16 says this, A fool's anger is known at once, but a prudent man conceals dishonor. So those are just five characteristics of a fool. We could look at more, but it's important to to notice this at this point, that to be foolish does not mean that you're just uneducated, that you don't have a college degree. To be foolish doesn't mean you simply have a lower IQ or that you're perhaps not educated in, in some kind of, some area of special knowledge. Not at all. In fact, if we would read in 1 Corinthians and elsewhere, that the, the, the people that the world would exalt as being the wise are indeed the fools. Fools are abundant in the highest levels of society, the highest echelons, whether that be in business, government, institutions of higher learning, ivory tower academies, fools are everywhere. It has nothing to do with degrees of learning. Ultimately, foolishness is a moral and spiritual state. It is a moral and spiritual state. Its most basic evidence is is found in Psalm 14, verse 1, where the psalmist records the fool as saying in his heart, there is no God. But the fool may even pretend to acknowledge God or may acknowledge God, but demonstrates his folly by his resistance to God's truth, by his resistance to obedience to the instruction that comes from God's word, even through the instruments that God has chosen to, to, to explain that truth. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool is the one who pursues disobedience. We must begin there. We must remember that. So now let's think, in light of that, as we remember their spiritual state, what else must we understand as we interact with fools? And here's the second lesson, and it flows out of the first Number two, we must resist their harmful influence. We must resist their harmful influence. Now, notice this. Foolishness, or what we can call depravity, foolishness is nothing else but the the sin of Adam that comes through in our lives, through Adam's original sin, comes through in our depravity, foolishness, is not only bound up in our hearts. Proverbs 22 verse 15 says that foolishness is bound up in the heart of the child. It's there from the very moment of the start of the existence of the child because of Adam's sin. In Adam, Paul says in, 1 Corinthians, or in Romans 5, in Adam, all sinned. And so every child that comes into this world has foolishness bound up in his heart, Proverbs twenty-two fifteen says. But notice this, Foolishness is not just something inherent to us. Foolishness, Proverbs teaches, is also contagious. You could say this, it's not just a problem of our genetic 
our spiritual DNA, but it is also something that we can transmit. It's a communicable disease, not just one that is inherent in, in our corrupt DNA. So, Proverbs warns us that exposure to fools can easily exacerbate the folly that we already struggle with internally. It's a very important understanding that that we must grasp. There is a clear and present danger in associating with fools. Now, as we're going to see, Proverbs doesn't say we just go and build a compound up in the mountains and live unto ourselves. We are in the world, even though we are not of it. But we must not be naive. We must recognize and have a clear vigilance in light of the fact that we have all these fools that are constantly intersecting with our path in life. Now, notice some of the things that Proverbs says about this harmful influence. And there are many Proverbs that speak of this. Proverbs 13, verse 20. He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Now, that one in itself is, is, is so clear and so direct, and it, it explains or it crystallizes this law that we've talked about before. It's called the law of assimilation. There are various laws that God has programmed into his world, one of those being the law of cause and effect, another being the, the law of delayed gratification. Another one of these laws, and we see it coming through in biblical wisdom in the book of Proverbs in particular, is the law of assimilation. You will become more and more like those with whom you spend time, whom you respect, those with whom you spend your, your, your relaxing hours, you will become more and more like them. You will assimilate their attitudes. You will assimilate their convictions. You will assimilate their vocabulary. You will assimilate their jokes. You will assimilate their desires, and so on and so forth. Proverbs is crystal clear on that. The law of assimilation. Proverbs 16, verse 29. A man of violence entices his neighbor and leads him in a way that is not good. Here the book of Proverbs points to the fact that there is no neutrality. And so a man of violence isn't content just to be a man of violence. A man of violence is enticing. He will want to entice his neighbor to lead him in the way that is not good. And Proverbs says, wake up. Wake up. If you have a man of violence as a neighbor, wake up. Be vigilant. Proverbs 28 verse 7, he who keeps the law is a discerning son, but he who is a companion of gluttons humiliates his father. So if you're going to be a young man and you're going to hang out with all those guys who who just eat and drink and spend money and engage in that kind of sinful debauchery, you will humiliate your father. You'll hang around with them. And don't be surprised but when you hang around with such a group that you will be pulled into the consequences of their sin as well. Don't be surprised. Don't show some kind of false shock 
that this happened to you? No, you associate with these people. You share in the consequences of their activities. And you will humiliate your father. Proverbs 29 verse 3. A man who loves wisdom makes his father glad. But he who keeps company with harlots wastes his wealth. There's another kind of fool. The harlot. And if you're going to keep company with them... You will devastate your family in many ways, including financial ones. Going back to Proverbs 14, verse 7. Leave the presence of a fool, or you will not discern words of knowledge. So not only does Solomon teach his sons that if you you associate with fools, you'll become like them. He then gives them the added instruction that they must leave the presence of fools because of this influence. Proverbs 22, verse 5, thorns and snares are in the way of the perverse. Talking about the consequences of sin, thorns and snares, the way of the unrighteous is a hard way. He who guards himself will be far from them. The way of the perverse. Proverbs 22, verse 10, drive out the scoffer. And contention will go out. Even strife and dishonor will cease. If you get rid of, if you leave the presence or drive him out of your presence, those cardinal sins of strife and dishonor will go with him. Proverbs 22, verses 24 to 25. Do not associate with a man given to anger. Or go with a hot-tempered man. Or you will learn his ways and find a snare for yourself. Again, this is the law of assimilation. We as men often are, we, we err in two ways. Number one, we, we overestimate our own ability to resist that influence, and we underestimate the intensity of the influence. And it's a huge problem with young men. It's a huge problem with immature men. They will develop these circles of friends and not realize the danger that those friends can have on his life if they are not men who are pushing him towards the Lord. Paul summarizes this. The Apostle Paul summarizes this succinctly in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, when he says this, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. Again, he's not saying that we can leave this world. We're in this world. But do not partner Do not establish your close connections, your partnerships, your unions with unbelievers. Paul goes on to state this. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? This is one of those texts that we'll turn to when a man will come and say, well, I want to get married. And you ask the question, well, who are you going to get married to? And He's got, an, he's got this girlfriend who's an unbeliever, but he professes Christ. And he says, well, she's so moral. She just doesn't love the Lord the way I do. She has her own religion, her own spirituality. But she's, she's given me full permission to pursue uh, ministry in the church and involvement in the church to whatever degree I want to, as long as, I, as long as she doesn't have to come. Things like that. And we take him there and say, well, brother, what... What fellowship has light with darkness? You are opening yourself up to a world of woe 
a world of woe if you hook your yoke to a woman who does not love the Lord. Let me say that again to you young guys because it doesn't always get through. You, you are opening yourself up to a world of woe, first of all, simply because the Lord says he disciplines those whom he loves. And if he loves you, he will discipline you for the, the rejection of his clear wisdom on marriage. But even from a practical side, just the consequences of this, do not think that that influence of an unsaved partner in your marriage is just something small. It's massive. It's massive. In fact, it's so important that we have all the teaching on church discipline. We, we could look at Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20, or 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 to 15, and, and how it's important that this body, this local assembly, be very careful about the presence of, of, of unrepentant sin in its midst. Why? Because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. The influence is far greater than, than we recognize. And our ability to resist is often far weaker than we think it really is. I like what Charles Bridges said in response to one of these Proverbs. The commentator Charles Bridges said this, The path of sin is much more easily avoided than relinquished. We can far more readily keep out of the course of the stream than stem the torrent. Walk closely with God and under his cover and shield bear a protest against the ungodly. End quote. In other words, Bridges is warning us to say, listen, it is far easier, easier to not sin than to stop sinning. And if you are in, a, in an environment that is constantly tempting you to sin and drawing you into that practice, understand this, it is going to be much more difficult for you to extract yourself from that than it is to prevent being pulled in. Understand that. It's going to be far easier to resist establishing the partnerships with the unrighteous than it will be trying to walk in, a, in the same yoke. Understand that. So very important. And I want to say this too, man, just kind of related to what is going on here even with respect to the pandemic, the last year, right? 2020 is the year that the world embraced in, in, in all, every country all across the world embraced this concept of social distancing, right? That, that's really what we're talking about with this second principle is the idea of distancing ourselves socially from those harmful influences in our lives. Well, 2020 is the year because of COVID to understand this concept of social distancing. And with COVID-19, 19 has come the normalization of what we call hypochondria, right? What's hypochondria? It's that incessant fear of becoming infected. And it used to be considered a, a psychological abnormality. Today, it's actually prescribed by the government. They would love all of us to become hypochondriacs. That's their way to control and we also find this idea, it's become entrenched, this idea of safism. That this conviction that the best life is the life that has the least risk. Well, in a, in a secular worldview, those, those ideas, hypochondriasm, 
and safism, well, that's just normal. If you're in a secular worldview, the greatest good is your physical comforts and your physical well-being. That's all there is in this world. But we have to understand this, that COVID-19 is not our greatest enemy. The infection that that threatens is not the greatest threat to our lives. And what concerns me is that you have men today who, yes, they recognize the need to take precautions as they should, but they fear far more an infection from a physical virus than they fear infection from the world and its ideology. Just look past, just look past over this past year. Just look at your life and even perhaps the life of those around you. And all the new measures and new normal that have, those practices that have been adopted into life under the sake of, of keeping people healthy. And then ask yourself the question, have I done this in a far greater degree with respect to the influence of the world? And so, you have to ask yourself, do you go to the same level of extreme, the same level of concern over the influence of sin in your life that you will over the influence of the potential contraction of COVID-19. Just this last week, I saw this, this it's on the slide here, a new way of, of trying to change, socially engineer Western culture to get rid of the handshake. You know, Dr. Fauci has said we should never shake hands again. And the idea is you never want to touch anybody's hand again. Never want to touch anybody's skin. That's the new norm, right? And so you have all these, this, this propaganda coming out about how we need to change everything so that we stay away from each other, don't touch anything, and, and that's fine. And I thought, okay, all right. And yet, look at this. More than ever, we have these crazy phones in our faces. Exposure 24-7. And certainly the government doesn't care about that. In fact, the government wants that. Big tech wants that. Big corporations want that. But men, just think of it. Let's look at things from a transcendent perspective. To what extent are we guarding our lives? Are we putting up filters, masks, to prevent the influence of sinners, of sin in our life, compared to what we're ready to do in order to get a virus, a physical virus. And it was Jesus who said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? And in our secular environment, it's been, it's been propagated even in the church that the most important thing for us is to preserve our human lives, our physical lives. And we can put the health of our souls on on standby, we can press the pause button and return to them, maybe at some point in the future, no need to worry about them, that is optional, that is optional, man, that is backward, Proverbs says, rebuff, rebuff the influence of the foolish, number three, speak out against their errant ways, Indeed, we must guard against their influence. We, we must be careful not to develop partnerships with them. 
We must not overestimate our immunity, and, and we must not underestimate their contagion. But that doesn't mean that we stop all interaction with fools. It doesn't mean that we fail to influence them. And this is so very important. We must speak out against their errant ways. We must not be silent. So very important in this world. We must not be silent. Why? Let me give you several reasons. Number one, fools must be corrected out of concern for their own souls. We must speak up because if we don't, they are sure to remain entrenched in their folly. And their fate is certain. We are the ones who have the beautiful feet that bring the good news of the fear of God. We must speak out if we are concerned for their souls. And so when people start talking about transgenderism or people start talking about LGBTQ, people start talking about all these other things that are going on, we cannot, we cannot mute ourselves. We cannot cancel ourselves. We must speak out out of love for their souls. You know, the latest thing in the news is this idea of, of uh, chemical castration for young children, young boys who are not even adults yet, who don't even have a legal right to get a tattoo or to buy beer or smokes or uh, to, to get a driver's license, and yet the government is making steps to ensure that at the age of eight they can begin taking chemicals that essentially function as chemical castration. And that is, that is sweeping over this country because of the state of the foolishness of this culture, and, and, and Christians are remaining silent. At a time when the church should be clear and public and vocal, many Christians just don't want to be canceled. They just don't want the hassle, and so they're quiet. And I just think of all those eight-year-old boys who are now going to be taking chemicals, getting to the age of 18 and realizing the big mistake and wondering where were the wise men. Out of concern for their soul, we must speak out, we must correct, we must, we must give the, the way of wisdom. For example, in Proverbs 1 verse 4, in the, in the prologue, in the introduction to the book of Proverbs, you have this preamble where, where Solomon explains why this book has been Compiled, and he says this, it has been compiled. One of the reasons is to give prudence to the naive. That's why we have the book of Proverbs. It assumes that we are foolish. You know, we could put our portraits up there. We'd all have a place in the portrait of the fools. We all were fools once, and we still wrestle with our own foolishness. The book of Proverbs was given to give us prudence. So it is this effort of love to give this life-giving wisdom to the naive. Lady Wisdom, in Proverbs 1, verses 22 to 23, says this, How long, O naive ones, will you love being simple-minded? And scoffers delight themselves in scoffing, and fools hate knowledge. Turn to my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. The whole book of Proverbs is this act of love as it is directed towards those who need it most, to the naive, to the scoffer, to the one who hates knowledge, to the one who needs reproof. And we must be the instruments of this book. 
Number two, we must speak out because fools must be corrected because folly merits it. We cannot sit idly by neutrally and not be impacted by those who spout lies. Folly must be corrected because it merits it. Proverbs 10 verse 13. On the lips of the discerning, wisdom is found, but a rod is for the back of him who lacks understanding. Because of a man's foolishness, he, he merits the rod. And this is the picture of correction, discipline. Proverbs 18 verses 6 to 7. A fool's lip, lips bring strife and his mouth calls for blows. A fool's mouth is his sure ruin and lips are the snare of his soul. Proverbs 26 verse 3 says, A whip is for a horse, a bridle for a donkey, and a rod is for the back of fools. And then it goes on in verse 5 to say this, Answer a fool according to, the, to his folly, as his folly deserves, that he not be wise in his own eyes. Folly must be corrected. It must be challenged because folly merits correction. Number three, we must speak out because fools must be corrected for the benefit of others. You have this onlooking world, and out of love for them, out of their sake, we must speak out when fools speak their lies. Proverbs 19, verse 25, strike a scoffer, and the naive may become shrewd, but reprove one who has understanding, and he will gain knowledge. Proverbs 21, verse 11, when the scoffer is punished, the naive becomes wise. But when the wise is instructed, he receives knowledge. Or Proverbs 24, verses 24 to 25, the ESV translates this just a little better. It says this, Whoever says to the wicked, you are in the right, will be cursed by peoples, abhorred by nations. But those who rebuke the wicked will have delight, and a good blessing will come upon them. That there are people who need to see foolishness corrected. And when we are faithful and courageous to do that, others will benefit and rise up and call us blessed. Now certainly that is not easy in this day and age. It has never been easy. We could read through the Old Testament, the New Testament, and read how the prophets, for their correction of folly, were persecuted, left and right, killed, But Jesus gives us this promise of a reward. He says this, Blessed are you, Matthew 5, verses 10 to 12. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Speak out, men. We need a courageous Courageous church filled with men who are brave and will speak the truth. Yes, speak it in love and grace, but will speak the truth. Number four, reject the fool's methods and his presuppositions. Proverbs teaches us to reject the fool's methods and presuppositions. Now, we all know this. The hardness of the fool's heart can tempt us to resort to any means possible to counter the fool's folly. 
We, become, we get desperate. We try, and the fool does not accept the correction. So we try another, another approach and, and another method. And, and we try to do this and that, and we, we end up trying to, in desperation, we, we, we end up trying to appropriate the fool's own methods and his own presuppositions in an attempt to persuade him. You've all been there. You're exasperated, and you say, well, why don't I start speaking as he speaks and assuming the same things that he does for the sake of argument? Proverbs teaches us that stooping to embrace the fool's worldview and his practices only shows that the wise man has been taken captive to folly. First of all, as a subpoint to this, Proverbs denounces the use of the fool's methods in communication. We are not to use the way of speaking that the fool does. And most of this is going to come in the form of quarreling, emotional manipulation, and anger. Those are the methods of the fool as he communicates his perspective. Anger, emotional manipulation, and quarreling. Proverbs 20 verse 3 says, Keeping away from strife is an honor for a man, but any fool will quarrel. The moment you begin to quarrel with a fool, you become like him. He's won. He's dragged you down into his mud. Proverbs 27, verse 3, A stone is heavy and the sand weighty, but the provocation of a fool is heavier than both of them. And the provocation there is the, that, that kind of communication, the the, the way of speaking that comes from a fool. And, and, and Proverbs warns us that it is heavy and not in a good sense. Proverbs 29 verse 11, a fool always loses his temper, but a wise man holds it back. Friends, we cannot use the means and the methods of the fool. We're called to something better. And that reminds us of Paul's words in 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 25. As Paul describes the Lord's slave with these words, the Lord's bondservant, the Lord's slave must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. Number two, Proverbs also denounces the use of a fool's presuppositions in communication. Now, here's a very important text that has elicited a lot of discussion from interpreters. Proverbs 26, verses 4 to 5. Proverbs 26, verses 4 to 5. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will also be like him. Answer a fool as his folly deserves, that he not be wise in his own eyes. Now, the NASB translation attempts to make a little bit of a differentiation there, but it's actually not even that, that easy to differentiate between these two verses. Let me read it a little more literally. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will also be like him. Answer a fool according to his folly, that he not be wise in his own eyes. Now, immediately, it raises the prospect of a, a logical contradiction. The same terminology in both verses. In one verse, we are not to answer the fool according to his folly. And in the next verse, we are commanded to answer him according to his folly. 
Now, critics of the Bible point to this often and say, here's an example of logical contradiction in the Bible. The Bible is obviously not very inspired, not very authoritative. It makes mistakes and so on and so forth. Well, that's a superficial answer because there are some very good responses to this. What are they? Well, you can come up with three, and one of them is the best response, but let me summarize these quickly. Some Jewish commentators believe that the difference between these two proverbs, verses five and, uh, 4 and 5, the difference was that the first one dealt with secular issues, and the second with religious. So, for example, with respect to worldly things, we do not answer a fool according to his folly. But with respect to religious or spiritual elements, we must answer a fool according to his folly. Now, that was a common Jewish explanation, and I don't think it's the best one. Another approach is this, that different fools are envisioned here. The first Proverb, verse 4, speaks of the hardened, irredeemable, apostate fool. Him you do not answer according to his folly. The second one deals with the teachable, naive fool. The one who is still teachable, who still, will, still has hope. But again, the difficulty there is that the word fool in both Proverbs, in verse 4 and 5, is the same Hebrew term. No distinction. So how do we approach this? And I think the best way is this third option. There are different purposes viewed in these two verses. In the first proverb, do not answer a fool according to his folly. The idea there is, no, do not descend to his level of argumentation. Do not use his presuppositions. Do not argue from his vantage point. Do not accept his, his, his core convictions and argue from there as if you can start from someone who does not fear God, use his presuppositions, and somehow argue up from that to a God-fearing perspective. The answer to that, according to verse 4, is no. You can't do that. The moment you use his presuppositions, you have consigned yourself to his foolishness, and you can't argue out of it. The second proverb, however, is that we must assert the biblical worldview, not according to the ways that the fool wants it to be expressed, but according to the ways that God has revealed it. We must answer a fool according to his folly so that he will not be wise in his own eyes. So that we do not allow him to continue to think that his logic, his presuppositions, his core convictions are valid. We cannot allow that. We must stand for truth. Bruce Waltke, one commentator, says this as he summarizes what is this right approach, this right answer to the apparent contradiction. He says this, quote, Without lowering himself to the fool's level in a debate... But by overcoming evil with good, the wise must show the fool's folly for what it is. The wise do not silently accept and tolerate the folly and thereby confirm fools in it. Both proverbs are absolutes and applicable at the same time. End quote. 
And number five, I'll just summarize very briefly, it's this. The fifth lesson is, do not entrust them to your well-being. And you can look at Proverbs 25, 19, and Proverbs 26, verses 6 to 10, that emphasize the fact that, listen, you do not trust fools with that which is precious. Your life, your children's lives, your wealth, do not trust them to fools. Number six, do not glory in their destruction. Do not glory in their destruction. Proverbs does recognize that relief that comes to the innocent, or does recognize that relief will come to the innocent when the wicked perish. Proverbs recognizes that the fate of evildoers is, is punishment. And that is true. But Proverbs nonetheless prescribes a specific manner for how we as wise men are to look upon the foolish and their destiny. And it's very clear on this. Let me run through this very quickly. Number one, we must respond to the wicked with unmerited love. We must respond to the wicked with unmerited love, not with hatred. Proverbs 10, 12, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers All transgressions. We could even look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 44, where Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, that part, hate your enemy, was not part of Scripture. It was included in pharisaical tradition. But Jesus says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Number two, we must remember always that it is not our right to avenge. It is not our right to avenge. Proverbs 24, 29. Do not say, thus I shall do to him as he has done to me. I will render to the man according to his work. The wisdom of Proverbs says no. It is not yours to seek revenge. Proverbs 25, 21 to 22 says this. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink, for you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. You could also look at Romans chapter 12, verses 17 to 21, where Paul incorporates Proverbs into his teaching there. We are never to pay back evil for evil. That is not who we are. That is not the way of wisdom. Jonathan Edwards in his 14th resolution said this, and this is something that we as men probably need to put up on our own bathroom mirrors. Resolved never to do anything out of revenge. How we need that every morning, don't we? We are not to operate according to revenge. It is not ours to seek. It is what belongs to the Lord. And then thirdly, as part of this Sixth principle, it's this, one must not glory in a fool's demise. Scripture is very clear that we are not to laugh over the calamity of the wicked. Proverbs 17, verse 5, he who mocks the poor taunts his maker. He who rejoices at calamity will not go unpunished. Or even more succinctly, Proverbs 24, 17 to 18, do not rejoice when your enemy falls. And do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. Or the Lord will see it and he will be displeased and he will turn his anger away from him. And that is so very important. Do not rejoice when your enemy fails. That is the way of wisdom. We are to love them. 
unconditionally. We are to refrain from any effort at vengeance, and we must resist the temptation to glory in their demise. There's a final one, and it's very straightforward. Number seven. The seventh lesson that Proverbs teaches us about handling fools is this. Focus your efforts on the receptive. And that's very clear. I won't go through that. It's in your notes. But the reality of it is, men, sometimes we have this savior complex that we think we can redeem the fool. And we think highly of our skills and abilities and we'll pour hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours into the fool thinking that we will be able to redeem him. Yes, make the attempt. But at the end of the day, remember, you've got a stewardship. And when there are others around you who are hungry and receptive to truth, focus on them as a first priority. A bunch of Proverbs speak of that, but I'll wrap it up with that. But as we close tonight, I want to ask you, what category do you belong to? We said it at the very beginning, those characteristics of the fool. Are you a fool? Or have you come to fear God? Are you still one who resists correction, who scoffs at holiness, makes a mockery of sin? Or are you one who has come to humble yourself at the foot of the cross, recognize the holiness of God, your foolishness that's bound up within you so tightly, your need for supernatural rescue from the bonds of that folly, have you come to the cross to have that problem taken care of? If you never have, you need to speak with somebody tonight because you do not know what tomorrow holds and the Lord will have his vengeance. We won't. We, we don't pursue vengeance. But the Lord must as a righteous and holy God. And until you are right with him, through faith in Jesus Christ, you are his enemy. But you come to the cross, and you can become his child. Let's pray. Father, we come with humble hearts to this teaching on fools, on handling fools, because we recognize that at one point in our lives, we were the fools who resisted, who scoffed, who mocked. And we're thankful for your saving grace. We're thankful for that fear that true adoration and love and worship which you implanted within our hearts. You made us alive and put us on the path of life and gave us your son, Jesus Christ, as our wisdom, our standard, our example. And now we are on this path toward conformity to him. We ask that as we walk this path and interact with so many different kinds of fools like we used to be, you would give us a great heart of compassion for them. We pray we'd never look with scoffing eyes, haughty eyes at them, but rather have pity and seek to speak truth, especially saving truth to them. 
We ask this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.